university success, you know, be financially sustainable and viable, really important, but of second order importance to the students, right? And the idea was to leverage the sort of the fact that we're a system, we have distributed in enormous uh, resources and scope and breadth. If you think about across the system, you know, 93,000 uh, students currently, 5,000 faculty, there's almost nothing we can't do if we figure out how to kind of work together. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is the podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders to help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. You're about to watch another episode of Start the Week with Wisdom, which for those of you who are at home, if you have not seen this before, these are weekly episodes where we conduct an interview with a sitting college president or chancellor, and we want to talk to them about how they're navigating the challenge of this moment. We're in a really unique time, and we want to focus on their leadership and unpack how they are making decisions, how they are navigating, and hopefully it will leave you with a sense of optimism, a bit inspired, and give you a bit of hope. I'm Doug Letterman, editor of Inside Higher Ed. This week, we're excited to uh, bring you Dan Greenstein, who's a chancellor of the Pennsylvania State uh, University System and former director of the post-secondary education program for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Welcome, Dan. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, wisdom seems like a pretty high bar, but I'm going to do my best. We're, we have very high expectations. We're, you're just gonna you're gonna bring your perspective from your former job to this new one. This is gonna be great. So um, we generally like to start by just getting a sense of where folks are kind of in this world. So how are you holding up right now? Everything's great. You know, it's, uh, every day is another journey through paradise. Uh, uh, seeing the spring, um, feeling uh, you know quietly. I hope optimistic about about the the, the, the future wind down. I hope of this pandemic and. Uh, and about the future of the university system. So yeah, all is good. The sun is out. All right, good. So maybe start by talking a little bit about uh, the your transition now several years back to the chancellorship there and, and uh, kind of what surprised you most about it? What, uh, what was most different from what you expected? Yeah. So, you know, great question. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, when I when I left the foundation, I was genuinely looking for uh, someone who was close to me said to me and I was looking at a range of different options. And they said, you know, can you imagine what you'd feel like at, you know, some age of retirement if you hadn't actually gone to see whether all that stuff you've just been sort of thinking about and, and, and you know, helping the foundation invest in to see whether or not that works. Right. So that was actually pretty um, uh, created kind of a turning point. And so I ended up looking for, you know, universities and systems that serve the population that I care about, low income students, students of color uh, disproportionately, but also one that recognized that it was at some kind of pivot point, watershed moment. And uh, and of course, I found that here at the Pennsylvania State System, uh, which was which was great. You know, the, the the kind of big shift and it wasn't I guess the, the discovery, the aha moment was to realize that that, you know, the need was there it was w widely recognized. The board was all on board. I think most constituencies recognized 
that things really did need to change in order to pre preserve and protect, uh, you know, public higher education in the state. I think one of the interesting things, part of the transition, is you, you know, go from the Gates Foundation, and you're thinking at, you know, at the high end, what's on the edge of 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 of, of innovation and, and and whatever, and then you realize that, you know, many organizational structures don't have basic capabilities that 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 are necessary not to to do innovation, but to actually make innovation sort of stick in a kind of lasting way. And so, and it was just, and it wasn't really exciting stuff. I mean, it was. It's a lot of infrastructure and policies and just enterprise management tools that weren't here and just a lot of time putting in place the kind of operational levers that you that you knew you were probably going to need going forward. So didn't I, I, I don't know if it surprised me, but it was it, it really did sort of consume a lot of attention for the first really 18 months of my time. That's helpful to give some context of what the challenge has been. I'm, I'm curious about what you see are you experiencing right now in the state of Pennsylvania that you think the rest of the country is going to have to deal with? And could you give us a sense of that? Yeah, sure. And I, you know, I, I'll be clear. I don't think our, our challenges here are unique. I think they're particularly acute, but I don't think they're unique. You know, I mean, so you see it's sort of a the confluence streams, right? Uh, declining state investment, uh, Pennsylvania's 47th in the nation in terms of its expenditure per uh, student FTE um, uh, has driven, uh, increases in you know tuition fees room and board um which has begun to erase the affordability advantage which is a traditional hallmark of a public higher education that burden falls disproportionately in our low and middle income students who have been sort of leaving us at a more rapid rate than others you know right out of our sort of not just when i say our i don't mean pennsylvania i mean you know the higher education, sort of public higher education sweet spot is that population. You know, enrollments are challenging to get anyway in a state of Pennsylvania, which is arguably overcrowded and in the middle of the demographic decline that Nathan Graw has, has written about. So you see all of those things happening, you know, here in a, in a particularly acute way, really over the last sort of uh, more than a decade, dozen or, or, or more years. Um, so, so I think, you know, and of course the net effect is that that begins to show up in a university's, you know, finances and the system's finances. Uh, which create a real sort of, um, you know, really take a problem and turn it into something approximating a crisis. And, you know, one of the, the reasons I was so interested in, 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 in uh, the state system was in the job search, the job description that the board issued really basically, you know, you squint your eyes and you read it and the board is saying, we have a problem. We really are looking for leadership to help us solve it. And that's rare in my experience for boards very publicly to say, okay, you know, this was, after I think the NCHEMS report had been done, a very good report about sort of structural challenges that the um, the system faced, et cetera. So it was sort of out there anyway. But it took, I think, a lot of courage for the board with the sort of support of the administration um, to, to, to sort of step up in that very public way and say, OK, we need to make this shift. Uh, so, you know, um, those challenges that I've just sort of reeled off, they're not, you know, unique here. Um, and frankly, I think, you know, I'm so glad we got started a couple years, two and a half or more years before the pandemic, because I suspect that you'd see some kind of an acceleration of the pace. Well, and that's I'm curious. Uh, it, it's obviously a little early to draw too many conclusions about the impact of the pandemic yeah. uh, across the board. I mean, we certainly saw more discontinuation of the academic from the academic path for the populations that you were just talking about. And I assume that held in Pennsylvania as well. Uh, I mean, I'm looking, thinking about the national data, but do, do you, are there ways, is it clear to you uh, which, what some of the ways that the pandemic either exacerbated or uh, accelerated the, the, the problems? 
Yeah, so so not yet. And because I just don't know that we know enough about what the enrollment trends yeah. are likely to be, right? I, I, I think, um, I'll tell you what I'm watching, though, <clears throat> is use of stimulus funding. I go back to, tw- you know, to the Great Recession and the use of the era money. A lot of people took that money and poured it into recurring operating. Bad, it turns out not such a good idea. You know, some of these these transitions, and when I say these transitions, it depends obviously on where you are, but the kind of transitions we're talking about, you do not want to start down this path when you are out of cash, right? They, they require investment and, you know, one-time investment and using having one time when it's going to play itself out differently, depending on, you know, where you are and, and then what the final regs are that the uh, ed comes up with in terms of how the money can be spent. But <clears throat> let's see, let's say, God willing, there is some modest one-time investment, how that's going to be used and what enrollment trajectories look like, man, that's going to make all the difference. Yeah. So I'm curious, you talked about some of the challenges that you think you see Pennsylvania experiencing that are likely foreboding for the rest of the country. Curious if you can share how you're trying to tackle them. What are you learning from the experience of trying to tackle them? Yeah. Um, give us kind of some hope or uh, at least a yeah. you know signal a direction for us to move yeah, in. Sure. Yeah. And so let me just, you know, just uh, put some concrete details around the, the trends themselves. So in our case, they've resulted over the last decade in a 21 plus percent decrease in student enrollments. Right. And and that's sort of average across the system. It shows our, our, our 14 universities currently about 93,000 uh, students. There's a lot of variety there. So the system averages kind of bury a lot of variety, but 21 percent overall decline in enrollment. You know, and uh, 62%, I think, increase in student, you know, per net average cost of attendance has gone up from, you know, 2010, our nearest competitor was about $6,500 away from us. Now it's, you know, 1500 or whatever. So, you know, that's really beginning to. And then, of course, you know, in a, a successive years of, you know, universities run largely on strategies of hope for a good enrollment year, a good budget year, et cetera. You know, um, uh, it, it's not necessarily doing across the system the really hard work of adjusting to our new enrollment realities, which, you know, really means dealing with under enroll, low enrolled programs, dealing with the fact that, you know, we just can't any longer be, you know, staffed in a way to serve 120,000 students, which was our high watermark. We're now at 93,000. So really taking on some of those challenges. So the board sort of watching all this coming. Uh, in 2015, 2016, sort of began the system redesign. I got here in 2018, so a couple of years after. And, you know, um, system redesign really has, uh, it, it really speaks to the sort of fundamental transformation of the system solely in the interest of improving our student success, right? Student success is right at the center. University success, you know, be financially sustainable and viable, really important, but of second order importance to the students, right? And the idea was to leverage the sort of the fact that we're a system, we have distributed enormous uh, resources and scope and breadth. If you think about across the system, you know, 93,000 students currently, 5,000 faculty, there's almost nothing we can't do if we figure out how to kind of work together. So those were the thrust of system redesign. It really has just a, a, a few sort of fundamental sort of pushes. One of them is, you know, a, a couple of them have to do with growth. We have to do better by our current students. I mean, you know, this This is true across, across um, you know, higher education and, and Bridget, obviously, the, the um, University Innovation Alliance has been tremendous leader in this in this arena. Just, you know, we can get our six-year graduation rates on average they're at 60%, which is good for our sector, but we can push them higher, right? And we have to push them higher. I mean, you know, whether you wanna come at this from a workforce development point of view or an equity point of view, we have got to do better by the students that 
uh, have historically been underserved across the country, including here. Who are those students? They're low-income students. They're students of color. They are rural students. Many, if not most of my, our institutions are in, in, in rural settings, you know, and there are, are, are rural uh, students are often, I think, overlooked in some of these uh, conversations. So doing better by the students we have. How about serving student groups that need our help, probably now more than ever in the aftermath of the pandemic, but who are under supplied and you know i guess critical need here in pennsylvania as elsewhere is adults looking to reskill and upskill probably not doing a four-year residential degree they need that next bump in name your industry vertical um that will help them or 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 you know even I, there's still room in a fully online undergraduate degree and degree completion programs where you know the state of pennsylvania and many other places are under supplied by a regional provider not that the non-regional providers are, are necessarily less good but there's you know still most people who are involved in an under in a, a fully online program want to enroll in something within you know 75 miles of their homes kind of thing so uh, serving our students better serving new student groups who needs our need our help obviously stabilizing the system financially we can come back to that but you know that many years of declining enrollment declining state investment real reticence appropriately in my view about putting too much of the burden on students you know has shown up in, in ways that just challenge us financially. Um, and then, you know, finally put in place the infrastructure, and I use that term loosely, that enables our universities to work together. So look, there is no reason that a student in Pennsylvania state system, even at a one of the smaller low enrolled schools should not have access to the full breadth of academic programming anywhere in the system. Our rural schools, our schools are often the number one employers in their communities. They are vital to the lifeblood of the regions that they serve. Funnily enough, not just in terms of jobs, right? They create jobs. They create the full range of leaders and health professionals and teachers that these communities need, right? And it turns out that it's not enough just to have one flavor of allied, you know, a health professional or of nursing or of business, right? They want the full breadth and they need the full breadth. And so it doesn't make sense that a university operating in a kind of each tub on its own bottom should only be able to stand up the programs that they can afford based on their enrollments in a system where you've got 93,000 students and 5,000 faculty. So what does that infrastructure and that policy environment look like that enables us to deliver that scope of opportunity to every single corner of Pennsylvania? Those have really been the hallmarks of our system redesign and kind of the vision for its future. Have you been surprised, again, sort of parachuting in to higher ed at, the, at, the, at how hard it is to get institutions to share and to uh, to think, you know, even I suppose, I mean, I guess system can be a strength, obviously, <clears throat> uh, and and one of your less well off institutions on its own probably would be, I suspect, would be in worse shape than if it were not in a system. But it's but it historically has is pretty challenging. And Bridget knows this, too, to some extent, although she's managed to get her members doing a lot of sharing. But have, have you been surprised and do you understand the do you have explanations for why it's so hard? Um, oh, this is a long conversation, Bridget. <laughs> it's a whole other program. So, you know, in, at some level, you know, I think I, I, I think I think of us in terms of how to incentivize sharing um, and recognizing the different incentive and incentive structures will work differently mm -hmm. in different places. Our universities, you know, the youngest of our 14 universities is something like 127 years old. <laughs> the oldest is Cheney, which is 180. I probably messed that up, but it's I'm not too far off. 
<clears throat> so these institutions have been operating largely independently of one another for a very long time. The system is only 35 years old, and it was basically a kind of a, a, an administrative structure <clears throat> that, that created an administrative layer between you know, the state government, Pennsylvania Department of Education, and the universities uh, uh, themselves. So, so I think you know, history is important, legacy is important, um, and sharing is hard. We're wired to not do that. And so you know, even in things like procurement, or, you know, you would have thought, let's buy pencils together and we'll save, you know, money. That should be easy, but it's not. And and it's not because you're asking, you know, a lot of people to change their workflow. You're asking some people to change their reward structure, you know, and you kind of have to honor that. Like we, in, 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 sometimes people find reward in terms of the amount of dollars they control or the number of people they manage or whatever, you know, and, and we can sort of think, well, that's silly. But 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of human nature and there's a lot of emotion um, in in sort of in fact one of the if you're looking for a great book there's a book called Switch which um, really deals with both the um, the head and the heart kind of aspects of change leadership and change management and I I, I have to say that's been very influential and in, I guess my thinking if not my practice probably my practice as well is trying to really understand that emotion and then really begin to think about how to address it and how to support people in the transitions that, you know, you're hoping that they might help you to make. Yeah, you're not, you're, it's it's hard to come into this space and not see how no institutions in a vacuum and you can't do the work in a vacuum because, you know, the rest of higher ed, we operate and benefit from, to some degree, a perception of scarcity because it, it pits individuals and institutions and sectors to compete and do their best. But that sense of scarcity makes people retract to hide the ball, to yeah. be defensive, um, and it's underneath it is fear. And so if you're going to try and get people to share, it is nearly impossible to get someone to give generously when they are coming from a space of scarcity and fear. So, um, yeah, you are you're, you're tackling the, the real stuff. These are not delicate. These are not easy issues. And part of the genius, I think, of, of UIA has been that it, it selected a membership which basically doesn't compete with each other. Right. For students. I mean, there's probably some uh, level of competition at some level, but um but not directly for students, right? And not like say fourteen institutions in one the state. state of Pennsylvania, where there's always a billboard somewhere that probably shouldn't be there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've generally found that the only there are two reasons to create a collaborative or to get people to collaborate in higher ed, um, especially in multiple institutions. Uh, one is a shared problem, and two is a big goal that is bigger than them, than any one of them. And beyond that, I find that there really isn't a clear path to, to drive collaboration. So getting folks to be willing to admit that they all have the same problem is in itself a part of that scarcity mentality too. So yeah. anyway, thanks for coming to our therapy session. <laughs> yeah, right, thanks. Um, so um, I did want to understand, um, you know, we've I've been seeing what's going on in the media and I know that, you know, it's, it's just really hard to drive serious change um, especially when they're entrenched interests, because the incentives in higher ed seem to, you almost have the same rewards for doing small change as you do for big change. So of yeah. course we have lots of little tiny, you know, low hanging fruit change, but you're trying to do real big work. And I'm just curious about uh, how your primary stakeholders in the state of Pennsylvania have been, uh, have they been receptive to the idea that change is necessary or, yeah, that's that's my question. So I think, it, look, I think at a meta level, Yes. I mean, it's so interesting because when I interviewed, you know, and I interviewed as anyone would, um, every single possible stakeholder group was represented in some context. And, you know, 
and again, it was a, a little bit, I can't remember exactly, but a little bit after the NCHEMS report was studied, which, you know, the study had been released and, you know, shine, shined a pretty sharp light on on some of the challenges that, that, that are, are being faced here. And I think people recognize that we cannot continue to be the same. And, and, and you know, we spent quite a bit of time. Uh, I visit each of our universities every semester and have spent, you know, every one of those visits talking very openly and, and very transparently about, you know, where we are and, and what our options are and, and, and why, why it's important that we address those options, you know, uh, and, and, and in, in language that you would uh, both, you know, understand, I think 60% of the, the jobs uh, in Pennsylvania today require uh, someone with some post-secondary education, 47% of adults have, you know, my guess is the credentialing productivity of Pennsylvania universities and colleges is probably shrinking, not growing. So that gap is probably growing, not shrinking, you know, and this, we're not, we're, we're talking about keeping the lights on in the economy. We're not talking like be number one or two or three, right? And so, so um, you know, you can come at this from an equity lens. I typically start there anyway. And, 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 you know, you just seeing as here's elsewhere, the kind of, you know, we have those sort of draws, those sort of shark draw diagrams and Robert Putnam's, our kids, you know, where virtually by every measure, inequality in this country is growing by race, uh, ethnicity and income and 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 you know and higher education is probably the last best vehicle to begin to attack that so and 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 then if you think of those two things together well you can't actually close that 47 to 60 percent gap unless you do better by low-income students students of color underserved students generally so you know the rationale i think is is commonly held um uh i think everyone would prefer a much different solution sure the state should come in and 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 um support higher education in a massive way, we wouldn't have to do anything. We could maintain, you know, 14 universities and it wouldn't really matter <clears throat> what their enrollments, you could have fairly substantial program breadth because it wouldn't matter if the cost of, you know, program breadth at one university was way higher than the cost of program breadth at another because the state, you know, was, and at 47th in the nation, there's a lot of room for maneuver. Uh, we get $477 a million dollars a year from roughly state appropriations. If we were average, the nation national average, if we were to track with that, it would be 880 something. You know, so there's a lot of room for maneuver within that. Um, uh, in the meantime, you know, our job, and I talk about this pretty openly, you know, higher education is a partnership. State has a job, which is to, you know, fund us and support us well. Our job is to make sure we're operating as great stewards of, of not just state resources. State picks up 25% of our total expenditure, but increasingly students' resources, they pick up 75%, you know, to make sure that we're, um, you know, so there are different views of the way we should go about the change. Um, and 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 look, you know, so some of the stuff we're doing is super hard. You know, we're, we're no longer a university, 120,000 students big. So, we're going to have to sort of curtail our expenditure. Our biggest expenditure, as in all universities, is on people. Our most valuable and precious asset, our people, and yet we we're just not big enough to sustain all. So that's not fun, you know. And it's 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 not something anybody wants to do. And we're you probably have seen this in the news. You know, we're looking at um, integrating uh, two groups of three of our universities. Well, you know. From a student lens, it makes a lot of sense. It goes back to the earlier uh, comment, conversation we had just a moment ago about, you know, you get universities which are just declining in enrollment. Their students and their communities still need a full breadth of academic programming that they cannot support based on their enrollments. So by integrating universities, you provide expanded student opportunity and all the full range of majors, minors, degrees, et cetera, that they require and that their communities require 
um, but that they can't fully support on their own. But, you know, integration isn't something that people wake up in the morning and think, yeah, hey, hey, let's go do it. Cool. You know, um, uh, I think there's tremendous opportunities, right? I, I, I believe that. And actually, we're just preparing our reports for consideration by the board. And it's really exciting stuff because, you know, people, what could we do if we were an institution of 13,000 enrollments that we can't do today? And let's see if we can drive, you know, a 10% improvement in our, in our, in our, uh, you know, retention student six-year graduation rates. So there's a lot of ambition and a huge opportunity to, to use that kind of organizational transformation as a kind of a reset on our student outcomes. So that's all cool, but it's hard, right? And, you know, I, we've taken a very devolved, just stick a minute on integration. We've taken a very devolved approach to planning, basically setting up working groups across the state. You know, they have sexy titles like leadership and governance and the academic program break. And there are a thousand people, students, faculty, and staff who worked on these working groups to build these plans. And this work is really hard because in some cases, you know, people are working in ways where they're thinking, what, what is my personal future? Come back to the emotional component. And yet, just as you'd expect, when you put people who are inspired by our public service mission and are so devoted to our students, they do fantastic work. So I want to honor that. Um, but, uh, but it's, you know, it's hard. And, and no, not everybody is going to be joining hands and singing Kumbaya and, you know, waltzing into the sunset as it sets over the, uh, over the Ohio, Pennsylvania border to the West, I think. Yeah. So, so what's, so how do you get people to conceivably, well, sort of from a leadership standpoint, how yeah. do you get people to conceivably work against their own selfish interests or at least, you know, I mean, what, what's the leadership challenge here and, and how, 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 how do you think you're faring at it so far, you know, and, and, and what, what still needs to happen to get that yeah. alignment around the concentric, what's it, the concentric circle yeah. there? So, you know, I think some of the things that uh, try to, you have to be just ruthlessly transparent. These truths are just really unpleasant. I, it's almost not, there's plenty of places you can go look for my public commentary <laughs> Radical transparent commentary, but radically transparent commentary. So I won't rehearse it here, but you can't hide that stuff under the rug. I mean, we're just, we're destroying our, we're, by not acting, we're just sacrificing a future. And it's the future of a state and the future of our students. Nobody wants to do that. So, and I think it's just important and, and you know, not to point fingers in your bed. And it's, it's, it's not about that. We, you know, we just, can't look in the rearview mirror. Look forward. So, I mean, on the one hand, so I think being you know transparent about what our challenges are, but I think the other thing is is just you know keeping your eye on that prize and and the hope and the optimism about a future. We can we can do this. I mean, I, I say we can do this. If we can't do this in Pennsylvania, and I believe we can, somebody's got to figure this out because this is a this is a national problem. I mean, this is a national problem bordering on being really serious if it's not already there. <clears throat> so we've got to figure this out. It just there's no, there isn't any longer any option, right? I mean, there are options, obviously, in the elite sector, you know, where, where you know, there's always going to be a market for those institutions, and there's going to be, you know, people who can, you know, pay the price, and and they will have endowments, and all that's good. But this, the sector that we serve, 25% of the student marketplace, you know, if you combine us with community colleges, we're damn near 50 or 60. You know, and we're serving the people of the country who are really not going to attend the elite institutions in any huge, large number. And the future of this country depends on our figuring this out. 
Um, so, so I think, you know, that in, imbuing it with that, uh, kind of mission, I think being just, you know, open to that sort of organic approach to planning. I mean, uh, and it's been interesting that we've been working with, uh, there's other models out there, um, that we did to determine to not, uh, undertake, which were maybe more coordinated, centralized kind of, uh, planning work. We did not do that. I don't think it would be culturally correct. You're going to go in directions and end up places you never thought you're going to get to, but. Ultimately, I think there's going to be a better product and greater buy-in. Um, so I think that's been important. I think being just, you know, having a having and 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 building relationships in the General Assembly and in the administration is really important. You can't do this. <clears throat> These are public institutions. They're political by definition. You know, we could talk about that forever. It's a good thing. It's a bad thing. It doesn't matter. It's a thing, right? And so we have to sort of negotiate and deal with that. And that means spending a lot of time. I spend an awful lot of time virtually now, but uh, before that, physically in the Capitol building individually. You know, it's just it's a retail business, making sure that people really understand where we are. And I understand where they are. I mean, that's and on behalf of the system. You know, so I think that has been, uh, you know, critical component um look you asked how we're doing i don't or how i'm doing in some ways it doesn't you know it's a it, it's it's uh, we're on a path where um we don't really have much of an option but to find a solution so if it's not this solution if there's another one good that, that that's not the point the point is we've got to find one i mean and and, and we are running out of time it is. I mean, it is not like, um, you know, it's so interesting. We don't have the luxury of many of the sort of transformational approaches that I'm familiar with, because, you know, if you think about what Arizona State did and I don't know when uh, President Crow took up his position there, probably in the early 2000s or, or President Becker at Georgia, you know, again, starting around the same time, you know, they had decade journey to continue to begin to evolve incrementally and then very in an accelerated pace. I don't think you're gonna find that timeline. I don't think, and I, there, there are, let me put it this way, there are other universities and systems that simply don't have that ramp. Yeah. Well, clock, speed is not our, clock speed is not strength. <laughs> We're gonna have to find it. Well, I appreciate you doing this work though. I mean, I remember seeing that position and as you especially as you were leaving the foundation you came out with a lot of energy you've been this at this level of being able to see change from so many different angles from afar and so i felt like you came in with kind of like the amount of reserve energy necessary whereas a lot of folks who would come in like I, that job was a very intimidating like a lot of folks were like yeah i'm not that because because it seemed like it was a really challenging space and people knew that pennsylvania needed to ta tackle really hard things so and just mainly what i'm what i'm picking up from this is I don't know if there was anything in your prior leadership experience that prepared you for this, but we need to better prepare future presidents and chancellors to be able to do hard change because otherwise we're going to keep having the kinds of folks who just nibble around the edges and do just enough to get by and then transition and retire. And so I'm glad that you're in that space. And I just, I feel like it's a challenge for all of us to think about the kinds of things that build the resilience that you're drawing upon right now. Yeah, and I think the the, you know, the other thing I think which has been critical here, and I should have mentioned earlier, is building a team, right? I mean, this you can't drive this from any one person or any <clears throat> any even small group, and and you know, and I, I and there's a bunch of and now I have actually a great team, uh, but uh, you know, I would <clears throat> take my hat off to our 14 presidents, you know, um, who uh, you know had patience with their new chancellor, uh, but who were also incredibly 
um, instrumental have been in getting us where we we need to get to by 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 recognizing you know look one of the unique things about not unique one of the important things about the state system is it's basically a single organizational structure it is one bank and which means that you know things that happen in any one university have a ripple effect everywhere else so if a university is financially challenged or financially strong that will have a ripple effect everywhere <clears throat> and i think you know recognizing that the accountabilities that run from a president to the board through the chancellor are almost insignificant and they're important by comparison to the accountabilities between presidents right i have an accountability to do good because if i don't somebody else is on the hook for helping you know for and 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 you know that was as the presidents began to realize that and work with me to create a team that's able to address those challenges openly, honestly, um, we built great teams around the integration work around some of the redesign. You know, we're, we're you know we have great people, and you know, it's one of the things that you know I picked up in my first set of visits around the universities. We have so much creativity and talent and grit. You know, to me, like the optimism stems from the fact that you don't really need anything from outside. It's all here. The intelligence is all here. The, even the change capability is all here. So it's it's trying to figure out ways to sort of convene and support as a it's a very different kind of it's a servant kind of leadership. But that team building, whether it's uh, the presidents, and again, I just you know uh, so grateful to them for their support. Each of our universities has a council of trustees, politically appointed kind of oversight group, engaging with them directly, engaging their help you know, showing up and listening, same with the faculty, the faculty union, just, you know, it's the same approach you use with the state legislatures, just being clear about where we are, but also listening to people and then, you know, being prepared to, you know, take decisions ultimately that need to be taken that probably not going to end up, you know, running, you know, winning the particular flavor of the month club, you know, vote every month, but that's not what any of us sign up for these roles to get. Well, we're glad that you're doing this work and we appreciate you taking the time to give us a little bit of perspective about what's happening on the ground. Um, Doug, as always, excellent co-host per usual. Thanks so much. And uh, again, thank you so much, Chancellor Greensight. This has been a wonderful experience for us to just be able to hear from you. And uh, for those at home, we look forward to seeing you next week on Weekly Wisdom.